Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Frenemies podcast. I am Joel Asher, alongside my co-host, Austin Green, back for our second episode. Just wanted to catch you guys all up to speed. We did release one just yesterday. It was more of an intro episode. Our first episode was an intro one. We're going to be a weekly podcast going on after this, but obviously we wanted to get some previews in before some big games going on this weekend and talk about NBA draft rumors that are coming up a lot right now, and so we're just excited to get the second episode going as we did our first intro one. Austin, how are you feeling? Episode two now. Excited to get it really launched here. I'm feeling great. I love the feedback that we've been getting, all the great support that we've been getting after our first episode. Thank you guys so much. Um, It means a lot to us to finally see this become a reality and um, get so much great enthusiasm about it. It really means a lot. Also, if my voice sounds clearer and not like I'm talking into AirPods, that's because I was talking into AirPods last episode. I had a mic problem that is now fixed, and so I'm happy to finally sound a lot better, hopefully, this time around. Yeah, good to have you sounding nice nice and clear. And also, I just want to say our thanks to Blue Wire Hustle and the whole Blue Wire team. Um, we're proud partners with them, and we, we couldn't have done it without them. They really helped us launch off the ground, and we're just so excited to be a part of that platform of sports content creators that just share the same passion as us so a thank you to them and really happy to be with that group yeah there's a lot of great other podcasts out there on the blue wire hustle network definitely check out some um before we were setting to record i was listening to some of the did you hear podcasts with emma and patrick um they do um they're doing some great work definitely go check that out before we really launch into it um i just wanted to say uh For those of you who pray, I just want to give a quick prayer request to our buddy John uh, Jesu Dawson. Um, He's fine. His family's all safe and healthy, but he's a Rockets fan. And (laughs) the Rockets are pretty much the, uh, are pretty much imploding all over the NBA map right now. So Sean Strania from The Athletic reported that Russell Westbrook demanded a trade. Um, It did look likely, clearly something was going to be shaken up in Houston um, especially with the departures of head coach Mike D'Antoni and general manager Daryl Morey. But now it's official that Russell Westbrook will likely get traded. But that's not all. The Russell Westbrook trade demand, Joel, was almost like, I hate to, this sounds kind of like a cliche Star Wars analogy, but it's it was like the the torpedo, Luke's torpedo that went in, into the Death Star and just started this massive chain reaction. And now the entire, the entire uh, Death Star has exploded seemingly overnight um james Harden is quote locked in but also according to espn quote concerned about uh his team's direction um austin rivers once cussed out mike d'antoni last season over not getting subbed into a game and he's apparently very very unhappy with his role so is former six man of the year eric gordon he's also unhappy with how his role has diminished over the past few years um, another guy unhappy with his role is former zero-time <laughs> NBA award winner and bubble quarantine breaker Daniel House, who was so unhappy with his role that he confronted both of his team's stars, James Harden and Russell Westbrook, over it. Um, that didn't seem to go over well because, well, he's Daniel House and the other two guys are James Harden and Russell Westbrook. Also, P.J. Tucker wants a bigger contract and he's very unhappy with how he's getting paid right now. So, all in all, it looks like uh, the crap is hitting the fan in Houston in a lot of different ways. And, um, Joel, what do you think? Do you think that we are headed to a complete teardown in Houston, or do you think we're just going to see some moves made around the fringes? I know there was talk on ESPN. I believe it was Kendrick Perkins who said that if the Rockets go ahead and trade Russell Westbrook, they should also entertain a James Harden trade. So, Joel, what do you think? Yeah, I, I just don't see any way of going going upright from this, honestly. I mean, it's one thing to have one of your players. I mean, obviously, Russell Westbrook hasn't been there for very long, but it's one thing to have him unhappy and demanding a trade. But to have your star player, James Harden, who you've pretty much built your team around, Mike D'Antoni built the, his whole system around the three ball and that step back Harden does. I mean, and to hear that he's concerned and then to hear those important role players like Austin Rivers, Eric Gordon, P.J. Tucker, and... Daniel House, I don't know how how important was he's had he's had some moments though he's had some flashes of moments where he's done well. It's just I don't know where you go from here when all those players are unhappy. What do you do? Who do you bring in to appease him? Who do you bring in to support Harden if Westbrook leaves to make him happy? At this point, I don't know what else you can do but just reinvent the wheel. The coach is gone. I mean, 
it's just a mess in Houston, and I feel bad for everyone who roots for them. And I don't know where you'd go from here, but if it were me, and all these players are so unhappy, I mean, they're not going to play for you if they're unhappy. They want to leave. They want to go. Harden hasn't said he definitely wants to leave, but it's just it's real concerning. I don't know where you can go from here, but rebuild, reinvent the wheel. I want to point out a few things here. Number one, it doesn't look like they're going to get anything of significant value for Westbrook. I know the most common teams mentioned in trade rumors are either the Hornets or the Knicks, which means you're mainly going to get draft picks. You're not going to get any players to come in and necessarily fill Russ's role. Second, even if you could get a quality player for Russ, who is on the wrong side of 30, who relies a lot on his athleticism, D'Antoni especially... Um, and more kind of especially in the second half of that season kind of retooled the Rockets roster to fit in a system where Russ basically was the only guy driving inside and the only guy in the paint. That system was kind of built to make the Westbrook-Harden pairing work. And so since there's not going to be a Westbrook-Harden pairing, to your point, there's a really strong case to be made for blowing it all up, especially when you look at how competitive the West is going to be the next few years. Um, the Warriors coming back, the Steph Clay Draymond core probably coming back at full strength, um, in addition to how competitive the race for the eight seed was, as we all saw. Yeah, Phoenix Suns. There's no reason to believe that they won't be able to make another run for that eight seed between the Suns and the Grizzlies. Um, the Blazers aren't going anywhere either. It's just really hard to see kind of a path forward to a Rockets team that is just relying on James Harden. Yeah, will they still make the playoffs at a lower seed? Possibly, but that's not, you know, that that's not what the Rockets are built for. That's not the expectation of what has what the expectation has been in Houston. I, I think it's safe to say their title window has pretty much closed at this point. Yeah, and I think Rockets fans would begrudgingly admit that. I mean, when they lost that series to the Warriors, I mean, it was heartbreaking and, and they've been in the playoffs. They've won first round playoff matchups, but they haven't quite been there, and everyone thought maybe Russell Westbrook would bring him there. That wasn't really the case, but you never know. I mean, the Oklahoma City Thunder, I think, this year, everyone counted them out. Oh, it's a rebuilding year, you know, and they were they were toe-to-toe with the Houston Rockets. So, you know, I it, it may not look like it on paper with the players they have, but they, they could surprise us, you know. You never know. Sure, and last point I'll make before we move on. Um, the Rockets, even though they were in a quote-unquote on rebuilding year they did have a lot of seasoned veterans on that um on that team led by chris paul of course along with danilo gallinari and stephen adams the rockets if they do sell off a bunch of these pieces if they do trade a bunch of these pieces it's hard to see where they would have that same kind of core going forward of course you know you'd always want james harden on your team than not having james harden on your team but it's still it's going to be really interesting to watch yeah it definitely is going to be we'll see what happens (laughs) Moving on to some more uh, NBA rumors that more directly concern our teams, Joel Celtics and my Lakers, Kevin O'Connor of uh, The Ringer dropped a big mock draft the other day um, and had a couple of interesting rumors regarding the Celtics and the Lakers. Um, First up, the Celtics are interested in acquiring Drew Holiday from the New Orleans Pelicans. Um, There's a possibility that uh, what a deal would look like is the Celtics have three draft picks in the second half of the first round, so they would possibly trade all three of those picks for a high first rounder if a team was interested, and then flip that pick to the Pelicans. Yeah, definitely. I have some thoughts on this, but Joel, you're the Celtics fan. I want to hear you first. Yeah, so yeah, definitely. Drew Holiday, I mean, he's a versatile player. He's been in the league for a long time. Obviously, we've seen what he can do with the Pelicans, and I mean, he'd be a good player to have on the team, but as far as those three draft picks go... As a fan, I don't know how comfortable I would be trading away all three of those. We definitely have a lack at the big man position. Enos Cantor put in a lot of good work, as well as Daniel Tice, but Bam Adebayo was just unguardable, and it was a major reason that we lost. In the playoffs, to the, to the Heat didn't make the title. Would have been a great rematch with the Lakers. I think a lot of NBA fans would have loved to have seen that, but we don't have a type of speed and athleticism from our big man. Al Horford brought that, and... And when he left, it, it kind of left a little bit of a gap. And I think I would like to possibly see that 14 pick used um, for someone with size and athleticism. And I don't know if I would feel comfortable trading it. I know they're looking to trade it, um, and they're they're open to it, but I don't think they're dead set on it. Still, salary deals would need to be worked out too, as far as that goes. Payne Drew Holiday, and 
with the core we have right now, they there even was rumor that Gordon Hayward or Kemba Walker would have to leave to clear the salary space for that. And I I would not feel comfortable with that at all, really. I Kemba Walker was a huge spark for us these playoffs. I don't think we make it all the way to a game six without him, quite honestly. He's been fantastic. Gordon Hayward was injured for a large part of the bubble, but made an immediate impact when he came back. And I feel like those are players who are still young enough to make a big impact where we don't need to shift them out. I think we can maybe possibly get a draft pick and build around that core, but you never really know with Danny Ainge. I mean, he's unpredictable. He's always looking to make a splash, a big move. And yeah, we'll just see what happens with that. But I personally would like to see us maybe trade away some of the other draft picks, but I don't know about all three. Yeah, no, I understand that. Um, I love Drew Holiday's game, and I especially see it in terms of, like, if you take Marcus Smart, who is one of the, who is an amazing defender, but has problems, especially on the offensive end. You take a guy like Marcus Smart, and you give him more of an offensive game. Um, you give him more of a three-level scoring ability, more speed as well. You'd get Drew Holiday. He'd absolutely be an upgrade. That said, yeah, I don't think that there's much reason. I mean, the Celtics... Um, took the heat to six games in the Eastern Conference Finals. They're clearly a title contender going forward. They're in the top tier of the East, um, no matter how you look at it, um, with the Nets and Bucks. Um, Jason Tatum is a budding superstar. I don't see any big reason why you would want to subtract from the core, especially you know from uh, Kemba Walker, who had a great first year in Boston. Gordon Hayward, I could understand that a little more, but I'm not sure the Hayward for holiday move moves the needle a ton. Um, as for the draft picks, I misspoke when I said three in the second half. I thought the Celtics had the 16th pick, not the 14th pick. That's my bad. Right. Um, but I do agree that um, you that Ainge, of course, like he seems to always have, has a lot of uh, options here and I don't necessarily see either packaging two or three of those picks and moving up in the draft or simply staying put and adding some young guys to add to the depth which you know was kind of the uh, move he took last year with Carson Edwards, right. uh, Grant Williams mm -hmm. guys like that, guys who could still play a role and be valuable role players deep into the season and into the playoffs I think that that's uh, a completely viable option for Danny Ainge as well. But this is something interesting. I, Like you said, if there is too much of a salary concern where you'd have to move Kemba Walker, Gordon Hayward, I just don't see Danny Ainge pulling that trigger. Yeah, nor do I. I just don't think it's a smart move right now for the Celtics. I, I, I personally like the core they have, and I mean, I know he sees the core that we have, so... But Danny Ainge has made smart moves. I mean, getting those draft picks from Brooklyn that ended us up with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. I mean, the man's smart, and he knows his job a lot better than I do. So I suppose I just have to to quote back to our rivals, the 76ers. I suppose I just have to trust the process and <laughs> see what Danny Ainge does here. But, yeah, looking forward to seeing what happens. Yeah, uh, even though the process eh, didn't really work out for the Sixers, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> all right, moving on to the Lakers. Uh, Kevin O'Connor also reports in his mock draft that the Lakers have talked to the Spurs around a deal centered around uh, DeMar DeRozan for Kyle Kuzma and Danny Green. Let me add some background to this real quick. The Lakers are obviously coming off a ridiculously short offseason. Kyle Kuzma was, he had some good flashes in the playoffs um, during the regular season. He was a big liability. I think once the Lakers added Markeith Morris and he could kind of become more of like a, a wing forward type of player, um, he seemed to do a bit better. He had some he had some good stretches in the playoffs. Danny Green obviously kind of notably struggled in the playoffs, um, pretty much throughout the playoffs. At their best, both Kuzma and Green are guys you want around LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Guys who can provide solid defense, can shoot the three, are big, are athletic, are long, and give you kind of that 3 and D mentality. Kuzma can create a little bit off the dribble. Danny Green can't really at all. Now, that said, the Lakers' biggest liability last year, um, and it was honestly a massive liability until Rajon Rondo decided to play like Celtics Rajon Rondo uh, in the early 2010s again, was kind of a second ball handler slash scorer beyond LeBron James. Dion Waiters was supposed to be that. He got hurt pretty early on in the bubble, didn't really see. I don't think he saw any playoff time. He, I think he saw a little bit of playing time maybe in the first round before he got hurt. 
especially this next year where LeBron has pretty much all but confirmed he's going to coast. Davis probably will. And, I mean, I don't think you can really fault them. They just went through a grueling three-month playoff stretch. They're getting about a slightly over two-month offseason. There's no way LeBron's going to go full throttle for at least the first half of the regular season, if not more. So bringing in a guy like DeMar DeRozan, who doesn't fit around LeBron James and Anthony Davis. He doesn't shoot the three. He doesn't play defense. He's not really a shooting guard anymore. He's much more of a combo forward. It makes sense to have a guy who could kind of bring that scoring spark um, as a six-man or kind of at the beginning of the season, maybe even in the starting lineup, maybe even directly replacing LeBron at the three. Now, on the other hand, that creates a problem because obviously if Danny Green and Kyle Kuzma, who their fit with the Spurs makes a lot of sense, um, people around Kuzma, I believe his trainer has gone on the record and said that the Spurs would have taken Kuzma in the 2017 draft had the Lakers not picked him up a couple picks before. Um, Greg Popovich loves him, loved coaching him on Team USA a while back. Kuzma also loved, loved playing for Popovich before he got hurt that summer. Danny Green, obviously, the Popovich has a long history of bringing players who were former Spurs back into the fold later in their careers. At the end of the day, once the Lakers get into the playoffs, they still need guys like Danny Green and Kyle Kuzma. And even if those guys don't perform well it's hard to see like even if even if Danny Green and Kyle Kuzma still have struggles still are not you know the still don't necessarily hit anywhere close to their ceilings there's still that possibility that they could um, down the stretch into the playoffs whereas DeMar DeRozan you know who he is and you know that when you're trying to put together a team for another title run he really just does not fit well with a full-strength Lakers roster constructed around LeBron and AD. So I can understand the move if they make it, but that raises a whole series of other questions. Serge Ibaka has been connected to the Lakers. Do they go out and get him as another stretch forward? Does Avery Bradley come back? You go get Austin Rivers. Of course, the Lakers you know, don't have too much cap space. They do have Anthony Davis's bird rights, and he obviously will resign with the Lakers. Um, that's pretty much a given at this point. So they do have some flexibility, but they don't have a whole ton. So there's a lot of there, there's a lot of different ways this can go, um, and I can understand the Demar Derozan trade, but that again that kind of you solve it's kind of like whack a mole you solve one problem and you create a bunch of others. Yeah, definitely, I I agree completely on that one. I Demar Derozan is an excellent player, and he's shown that he's he's a great player throughout his time in the league. But kind of similar to Russell Westbrook, he is he is getting a bit up there in age and having the, those young players like Kyle Kuzma, Danny Green obviously not one of those young players, but Kyle Kuzma, I mean, he can he can provide spark at times and he has struggled at times, but I I just don't see the fit like you said with LeBron and AD with DeRozan. If it were me, I would I would probably not go for that. I would probably not trade away those two those two key players. I just don't see the fit either as well. I agree with you on that, Austin, and I think the Lakers would be better fit trying to go in there address their needs um in a different way. So Danny Green, um, per 100 possessions last year, which was, again, a down year for him, he attempted about 9.2 threes per 100 possessions and hit them 36% of the time. That was a down year for him. Definitely down off his one season in Toronto where he attempted around the same number of threes but hit about 45% of them. DeMar DeRozan attempted about in in, uh, the 2019-2020 season 0.7 threes per 100 possessions and hit them 25% of the time. So you are losing, even though Danny didn't have the best year last year, you are still losing a ton of shooting Right. in a a trade that would send uh, Green back to San Antonio and bring in DeRozan. So, yeah, there's a pretty obvious downside. Again, the upside is also there if you look for it, but I do agree that I just don't know if you pull the trigger on that. And I think that this is something that obviously Rob Polinka has weighed a lot in the past couple of weeks as well. The Lakers, I will say this though, the Lakers do need to make some sort of move because I don't think you can run it back with pretty much the exact same roster next year, even with Avery Bradley fully on board and expect the same result just by the nature of the crazy 2020 season, how unique it was, the bubble, the hiatus, um, the really short off season. It's just... I think you need to get some fresh legs in there, especially in the beginning of the season. That is really something to factor in. I think the Lakers do need to make a move. 
Um, at some point, they do need to bring in guys who can kind of help shoulder the load, especially early on in the season. I just don't know if DeMar DeRozan is that guy. Yeah, and there's a lot to be said about that hiatus. I mean, obviously, such a weird, weird year. Um, I saw I saw on ESPN that I think the Lakers have seventy, a little over seventy days to prepare for this next season coming up. But teams such as the Warriors, who didn't make the bubble, two hundred and eighty-six days. Wow, that is, that is unheard of. Yeah, I mean, how much rest is that? If Steph Curry and Clay Thompson don't come out with fresh legs, I mean, obviously Clay coming off a huge knee injury, but I mean, if you don't come off with fresh legs after. I mean, that's nearly two, that's about two-thirds of the year. That's so long to have off. So those fresh legs are going to be important for teams like the Heat, Celtics, Lakers, who made yep. that title, have a much shorter break with the December 22nd tip-off that the NBA has agreed to. So, yeah, definitely to your point, fresh legs going to be huge this season. Yeah, and there is something to be said for rust. Um, but at the same time, you know, Steph and Clay and Draymond, guys like those, have obviously been practicing on on their own time during the hiatus and stuff. They've been staying in shape. They have the means to um, have access to facilities, have access to courts, have access to training, um, even in the midst of COVID protocols. And so I do agree with you where rest is going to kind of outweigh rust in this situation. And a lot of the teams you mentioned, um, the Lakers, Celtics, Heat, as well as um, I think even teams that went a little less further than that, even the Clippers, the Nuggets, um, the Bucks, I, yeah, teams like yeah, that. Yeah, the the Bucks, even even I mean they still played I think it was they probably played about you know, two, two and a half months in the bubble. Um that you know, that still accounts for something. Right. So moving on, some other big news out of the MLB. The Angels have finally hired a new GM, Joel, your Angels. Hope Springs <laughs> Eternal for Mike Trout, just as it has every year since twenty fourteen. Take us through kind of what you think about the move. What you think about who Perry Minasian, I hope I'm saying that right, brings to the Angels? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you've heard me, you've heard me as, as we've been friends, you've heard me say time and time again, well, maybe next year with Mike Trout. It's just, it's been disheartening to see how much offense the Angels have. It's really, it's really crazy when you think about it. I mean, David Fletcher's an on base man, Mike Trout's hitting amazing. They bring in the big paid Anthony Rendon, fresh off a World Series title. But Billy Epler, what he never was able to do was bring in an ace. I can't remember the last time I've watched an Angels game and been 100% confident that this pitcher is going to go seven innings and he's going to give up only like one run. I mean, the Angels pitching is just a clear problem. And I, <laughs> it really just begs the question, what was Billy Epler thinking? Because pitching has been such a glaring problem and anybody can see it. The Angels... Time and time again, I've seen games we put up 10 runs and you lose. I mean, that's absolutely unacceptable to lose a game while putting up 10 runs. It's all good and well, and I'm excited. And I will say that Billy Epler did a good job building that offense, but we need pitching, plain and simple, and it comes down to that. So yeah, this GM coming over from the Atlanta Braves, he was the assistant general manager there. A lot of experience in the league. Um, he was started out in Texas, moved over to the Toronto Blue Jays, and was actually responsible for bringing in names like Noah Syndergaard and Marcus Stroman to the Blue Jays. So he, he knows how to build the club well, and I'm really excited to see him get started, really excited for the future of the Angels. I know we have a good offensive core, and the pitching just isn't there, and I'm hoping with the cap space we have, I know we're paying a lot for Mike Trout and Anthony Rendon, and in my opinion, way too much for Albert Pujols, who's well past his prime, even though I love the guy and he is a clear Hall of Famer. But yeah, it's just a fun, exciting move. Um, I'm ex he has a lot of experience and has brought in a lot of good players. Obviously, you've seen the success that the Atlanta Braves have had. He's been there since 2018. So he's had about a three-year stint with the Atlanta Braves. They're consistently winning that division and came up heartbreakingly short to your Los Angeles Dodgers. He's a proven team builder, and so I'm excited to see what he can do. Hope, hope he brings in the pitching, and he already... He already has said that pitching is a priority, so I'm excited that he's already identified that, knows that's the problem, and is ready to get started in Anaheim. It does seem like the Angels went with a very, even though this guy is a first-time GM, very traditional route to the job in terms of kind of working his way through the ranks. Um, you mentioned his involvement with the Blue Jays and some of the key, um, the key trades they made there. He also, obviously, the Braves have really kind of retooled around a, uh, a core of position players and been able to kind of add pitching around that. My one concern is what I always look for in new GM hires is how they will kind of replicate the model they saw at their old team with their new team. 
what I see with the Braves in terms of the way they've been able to develop pitching and be able to kind of sign pitchers to bolster that kind of young core of, of pitchers is the Angels just don't have too much in the pipeline when it comes to pitching, when it comes to minor league pitching, when it comes to development. They need to bring it in from outside. Right. And I just don't know how you're able to. I know that our pools contract is starting to wind down. It looks a lot more manageable. I know that uh, I believe I read on MLB Trade Rumors that the Angels will only have Mike Trout and Anthony Rendon on the books past 2022. That's the way their uh, roster looks right now in terms of salary obligations. So you can build around that. Obviously, Trout and Rendon are both um, superstars in their own right. That said, I just don't know how you're able to build an entire pitching staff through trades and free agency. And that's the real, that's going to be the real challenge for Manazian is the way he's just going to have to uh, kind of do that with kind of really a bare cupboard when it comes to the pitching pipeline, pitching development. Um, because even the Braves, even though they're calling cards, obviously Ronald Acuna, Ozzy Albies, Dansby Swanson, Freddie Freeman, all, you know, if you went down the, best slash most recognizable players on the Braves, you know, probably the top four, maybe even five of them would be position players. But you compare their pitching nucleus to what the Angels have, at least the Braves have something. And so that's going to be really interesting because the pathway back to the playoffs for the Angels, as you said, is pitching. I think that's where Billy Epler can really be faulted because his his method of addressing that was always kind of reclamation projects, Tim Lincecum, Matt Harvey, Trevor Cahill, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I just don't know kind of where you go from here. It's going to take more than one big move to repair the Angels pitching staff. I think that's what I'm getting at overall. And I just don't know if any GM, um, even like I said, Perry Manazian is very well qualified for this job, um, has has done a lot of, has been a part of a lot of great teams. I, I, I mean, I just don't know how you're able to kind of turn this around because obviously the Angels kind of have a win-now mandate right now with the way that with their kind of core on the position player side. I I, I want to see it. I want Mike Trout being in the playoffs is great for baseball. It means that Orange County, Fairweather, Angel fans are going to be more insufferable, but you know what? I will, hey, well, hey, I hey. will take that sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> I will take that sacrifice for the common good, for the common good of seeing Mike Trout in the playoffs. I, I just – don't see how that's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, he, it's definitely going to be an up, uphill battle for Manazian. I mean, he's got Dylan Bundy. I, I will say this, Dylan Bundy. That's true, Dylan Bundy. A very I did good forget year. about him. And honestly, I'm just hoping <laughs> the Angels at this point, to, you're right. I mean, they're not going to be able to rebuild it like that real quickly. We don't have the money. We don't have the draft pick. We just drafted a pitcher 10th overall, at least. We got Ross Detmers, hoping that he can come up pretty soon and make an impact, but Bottom line, the pitching that we have existing right now is just going to need to be better. And I don't know whether it's them putting in the extra work, the, the pitching staff putting extra work, but Griffin Canning has shown flashes of being quite good. Um, he just, when it, when, it, when it snows, or when it rains, it pours, I should say, as the saying goes. He, sli- he slips and allows a run, and it just falls downhill from there. Um, yeah, Andrew Heaney has actually been a, another bright spot. He's been uh, he's been all when, right when he's been healthy. When he's been healthy, right? When he's healthy, he's okay. So the Angels do have a few rot- rotational pitchers, starting pitchers, but the closers, the closers has been an even has been the overarching issue. Has been the closers. So many times I've seen the Angels have a four run lead and they come in and immediately Noe Ramirez he comes in, allows a walk, hits a guy, allows a single, and just like that, Granny, we're tied. And it's just it's unacceptable to have. So the relief pitching is something the Angels are going to need to focus on. I, I remember talking with my, my good friend Josh Saucy, and I've been tell, I tell him, there's not a moment in an Angels game when a closer comes in, and I'm like, yep, I'm confident he's going to close this game out. Never. doesn't matter what the lead is. That's just the way it's been. And I've seen us blow so many leads time and time again. And yeah, Manazian does have an uphill battle ahead of him, but I'm hoping that he can hoping that he can make some moves and that that Angels pitching can just simply play better with some of the players that they do have right now, can just work hard, play better, and get us. It is just a it's a travesty to not have Mike Trout in the playoffs. He's only been there once in 2009 as a young player. We lost in the first round of the Kansas City Royals, and for it to be 11 years since Mike Trout has been in the playoffs, and he's only been once, 
a no doubt Hall of Famer, and some are saying statistically, if he keeps up the pace he's on, he could be the greatest to ever do it. For him to never make, not, not only for him to not even win the World Series, but not even make the playoffs more than once is just, yeah. it's absolutely unacceptable for the best player in baseball. And so I know I'd be frustrated if I was him, but he clearly loves the Angels family and is dedicated and committed to getting them back to the playoffs. Just signed a massive 13-year contract with the Angels. He's going to be there for life. So it's up to Manazian and R.D. Marino, the owner. I think he made a good decision, though. I like Manazian, and I, I like his past experience. Um, it's going to be, yeah, like you said, it's not going to be just like the Braves. He came in, the Braves already did have pitchers in their rotation when he when he came to the team in 2018. So the Angels... Not just, not just pitchers, not just pitchers, young pitchers, yeah. where when they did sign Dallas Keuchel for a year, when they did sign Cole Hamels for a year, they weren't expecting them to be retro Dallas Keuchel or retro Cole Hamels. Cole Hamels certainly wasn't um, wasn't able to stay healthy. Felix Hernandez, too, right. um, who obviously didn't pan out. So they've, they've made a lot of the similar kind of moves that the Angels have made in terms of trying to get the last bit out of veteran pitchers, except that they they didn't need to rely on that. They had, you know, Mike Soroka. They had um, Fulton Woods for a while. Uh, they had guys who could kind of answer the bell. Young young pitchers on rookie deals too, which is key. Yeah, I will say this about building a bullpen. It is a bit easier, especially for good front offices, to find effective relievers. I'd say it's a little harder because everyone kind of knows how you know how to kind of look under the hood in terms of a reliever who maybe gotten lucky, um, especially in such a short year like 2020, and might bet on a bounce back year because that I think it really falls on how much you get out of the starting pitching and then how much are you able to kind of patch that over with a patchwork bullpen of guys who um, who you know kind of lottery tickets guys who you know you you're not sure what you're getting out of them but you're hoping that. It's something maybe the way they were a couple years ago, um, where it's easier for relievers to bounce back to that role than uh, starters, obviously, as Joel probably knows very well. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So yeah, just yeah, just looking forward to the future, hoping that Manazian can uh, get this ship turned around. In my opinion, and I think a lot of Angels fans, it was due time for Billy Epler to be on his way out. He did build that offensive core, but I think it was due time. He wasn't addressing the problem, which is pitching. Yeah, absolutely. And already already Manazian has said in a quote from him, uh, there's a great mix of veterans here. We're talented, and there are some young arms that have a chance to improve and make an impact on this club, but pitching is a huge priority, end quote. And so he already, he already knows, the, he knows what's been plaguing them, and he knows why the Angels aren't making the playoffs. Yeah. And I'm hoping he can do his best to address that, and we can see Mike Trout in the playoffs. Prayers up for that, please. That would just be good for baseball. Not only good for Angels fans like you, but just good for baseball. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, he he just he needs to be there. Moving on to the defending twenty twenty World Series champion Los Angeles Dodgers, I will never get tired of saying that. Neither apparently will Clayton Kershaw and Justin Turner, my former boss over at Medium Large LA, Matthew Moreno, has some quotes from when uh, Clayton Kershaw and Justin Turner appeared. On Sportsnet LA the other night, quote, I told JT, I just play We Are the Champions over and over at the house. I'm dead serious about that. I play it every day. My kids are sick of it. Um, <laughs> he added he also uh, is thinking of just wearing his World Series ring everywhere he goes and carrying a trophy replica with him. <laughs> Justin Turner basically said he's going to probably do the same thing. I love this. I love seeing, obviously, Clayton Kershaw, one of the best pitchers of his generation, one of the best pitchers of his all-time, get his due. Um, I love, to the fact... I will say this, though. As great as it is for him to celebrate the fact that he's a World Series champion, finally, 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 after all this, for his kids, I believe Callie is now five years old, his oldest daughter. Charlie is about three. Um especially Callie, who will probably, she's at the edge, she'll probably remember this going forward. I hope in like 10, 15, 20 years, Callie just roasts the absolute crud out of Clayton Kershaw for doing this. Because <laughs> this is the most extra thing possible. And I, he, he's completely within his rights to do it. But looking back, um, it reminds me a bit, it's kind of like the safe dad version of, do you remember when a couple years ago, the Washington Capitals finally won the Stanley Cup? Um, after years of playoff disappointment, similar to kind of the Dodgers. And 
for the next two months, we just saw videos of Alex Ovechkin, their star player, doing keg stands with the Stanley Cup, like, <laughs> everywhere. It was, like, legit, like, two solid months. Um, the man just, the man was on just, like, a permanent high. It feels like Kershaw's kind of on that same high right now. And I really hope that his kids never let him forget how corny he's acting right now. Again, he's completely within his rights to act this way. I love that he's doing it. Um, but I just really hope that in the future, his kids now have some ammo to kind of, uh, tease their dad about that. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's definitely, obviously it's been a long time coming, like you said, for Clayton Kershaw and he's, he's celebrating, but definitely we'll see how long this celebration extends, maybe all the way into spring training, who knows, but his kids, uh, as you said, are already real tired of that We Are The Champions song and it's only going to get more and more old. They're never going to want to play it after they win any anything in their future so really funny to hear that but Clayton Kershaw obviously one of the best pitchers to ever do it and even though I'm not a Dodgers fan at all I respect the heck out of him and Justin Turner and those guys who have been been through it they've been right there and they barely not won it so congratulations again to them for winning it and deservedly so celebrating and I guess we'll just have to we'll have to have a running tab we'll see how long Clayton Kershaw has that song going and we'll, we'll maybe update in a few weeks see if See if he's still carrying around some replica trophy. See if uh, the paparazzi in L.A. catch him out with a replica trophy at a restaurant or something. <laughs> carrying it around. Clayton Kershaw, we are the champions. Watch. You're, you're <laughs> going to get it right here. Yeah, you're going to get it right here on this podcast. You're going to see him strapping his replica trophy into the seatbelt in his car, maybe. <laughs> driving <laughs> off into L.A. <laughs> we'll see what happens with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. For our last segment, um, USC is at Arizona this week. Uh, my Trojans are going up against Kevin Sumlin's Wildcats. Joel, you got Notre Dame against Boston College. Let's start with Notre Dame-Boston College. You mentioned on the previous episode that the last time uh, Notre Dame beat a number one team in South Bend was 1993 over the Florida State Seminoles. What happened the week after they beat Florida State in 93? <laughs> yeah, so Notre Dame got obviously the massive win. They won it 31-24 over the Seminoles. They had a driver's seat to the national title. And then the next week, they played an upstart Boston College team who was upset mind. And the Irish, coming off such an emotional and probably draining victory, they fell short. They got upset by an unranked Boston College team, and their title hopes went out the window. Florida State went on to win that year, and the Irish, with that one loss, it just devastated them, and it, it pretty much ruined their entire season. Obviously, a much different system than now. There's no champion. There weren't any conference championship games, obviously, for the Irish, and there's no college football playoff back then. But it is shades of 1993. I'll say that Boston College is the opponent this week for the Irish, and you always talk about these trap games for teams, and they often will come after big emotional wins over a rival opponent like Clemson and when and you got to be really careful here Brian Kelly I'm sure has been preaching to his team this whole week you got to be careful because obviously double overtime that takes a lot out of you and that type of environment and just playing the number one team in the nation thankfully they were able to come out on top but you cannot relax there are still four more games in the season and bit of a familiar foe Boston College and Notre Dame have a long history they call it the holy wars we're both catholic schools but a familiar face on the playing field, too, as the quarterback for the Boston College Eagles is none other than Phil Yurkovec, who just transferred this past year from Notre Dame. He was the backup to Ian Book. So I'm sure he's going to have an upset in mind going against his former team, who didn't deem him good enough to start. He's much bigger than Ian Book. He's a 6'5 quarterback. He's versatile. He can throw the deep ball really well. So this is by no means a game that the Irish should sleep on. I think they sh- they've got to really focus on just sticking to the fundamentals. First and foremost, the Irish are a running team. They've got four seniors and one junior on that offensive line. They have played hundreds of games together. It's an experienced offensive line handing the rock to Kyron Williams. You saw what he can do against a top defense in all season. He scored three touchdowns against that Clemson defense, including a 65-yarder on the second play of the game where he just completely froze the safety with a little inside move and took off. So, I think Notre Dame really needs to focus on that. And then on the defensive side of the ball, they've they've got to guard those receivers. The receivers for Boston College are no slouch. You saw them the week before this Notre Dame-Clemson game. They took on Clemson um, in Death Valley, and they were up 28-13 to 13 at halftime. I mean, they were slinging the ball. Phil Yurkovec 
was playing like the quarterback that everyone knew he could be, but he didn't quite pan out for the Irish. But Boston College has got a good quarterback in him, and they got to be careful. Guard those receivers. They got to get get him into those third and long positions. They can't let him into those third and short where they're just easily cruising down the field. But that Irish defense has proved that it can stop the run, but it was a bit vulnerable to the pass as DJ Uyunglele threw for over 400 yards this past week. Part of that is definitely that the Irish put a huge emphasis on stopping the ACC all-time rushing leader, Travis Etienne. We loaded the box, and we wanted, we made sure that he wasn't going to be the reason that we lost the game. So part of that goes into that, but the corners led by future All-American. Here's another prediction. Future All-American Kyle Hamilton. Wow. It's an absolute okay. stud. He's a five-star out of Georgia, and he's, he's, he's unbelievable. He's all over the field, breaking up balls. He hits hard. He's he's a great player, and he's going to be a great player in the NFL someday, I have no doubt. He's going to need to be big for the Irish, and those corners are going to need to be big. But overall, I think led by the experience that the Irish have, they're battle-tested. That offensive line is Ian Book, obviously fifth-year senior veteran. I think the Irish come out with a win, but I think it's probably a little closer than many would anticipate. My score prediction is going to be 31-24 Irish. Okay, solid. Yeah, a, a couple quick things to add to that, kind of from an outsider perspective. Number one, um, you kind of touched on this, but like we've both rooted for college football powerhouses. We're all familiar with trap games, and this is like a bright red neon sign of trap game. Obviously, even history aside of uh, Boston College ruining Notre Dame season after a huge win, this just obviously just has big, huge warnings. I do think it's a huge plus for Notre Dame that the game is in South Bend. It's actually not. It's it's on the road. It's in Boston College. Oh, it is. Is it Boston? It is. Oh, it's my on the my road. mistake. My mistake. I'm sorry. I missed. Yeah. I, I I misread the schedule. Um. So it is. It so it is in Boston. It is a road game. That that obviously adds to it. Um. Even though I doubt there will be any spectators there. It's yeah. What you said about Kyle Hamilton. Hamilton. A couple of weeks ago, I would have called you crazy. But you know what? With the way Georgia's supposedly stacked. Secondary has gotten shredded by Bama and Florida the past few weeks. It does appear that their their stock is going to take a hit. Bama as well. Bama's defense has not always looked great. I think that, yes, Notre Dame gave up a ton to Clemson, but Kyle Hamilton um, has made his presence felt. I do think that you might have a point with that prediction. Yeah, yeah, we'll see what happens, but I, I have no doubt he's going to be a great player. Georgia, he was highly recruited by teams like Georgia, Alabama, LSU, Everyone down there in the South, he's from Alpharetta, Georgia. And obviously the Bulldogs made a strong push for him, but he, he came to the Irish and he's been nothing but an absolute stud. The first interception of his career last year as a true freshman, he took all the way back to the house for a pick six. So he's, he's made his presence felt the entire time as a safety back there for Notre Dame. And I think, I think he's going to continue to do so. He's just an absolute beast. So I'm looking forward to it. Hopefully it's not uh, too much of a trap game, and I'm hoping my Irish – can get out of it and just a quick thing before we move on to we're going to preview a bit on the usc arizona game i just want to offer my condolences to the horning family and all of his loved ones as legendary notre dame and green bay packer paul hornung passed away on thursday um he's been battling dementia for a long time he passed away at the age of 84 and he really was quite a legendary player back in the day he won the heisman at notre dame in 1956 and in 57 he was the number one overall draft pick to the packers where he played 10 years with him and won four Super Bowl titles. And he really was a jack of all trades. I mean, he played running back. He threw the ball. He was even their place kicker, which is wow. just unreal. You don't hear that at all nowadays. But No, you do not. But that, that jack. Yeah, definitely. So he just really could do it all. And that prompted legendary coach Vince Lombardi. He called him the most versatile player in the history of the league, wow. which, is, which is high praise. He was the MVP in 1961 in the National Football League was inducted into National Football League Hall of Fame in 1986. So just a legendary player for the Irish and for the Green Bay Packers, and we're sad to see his loss, and our condolences go out to his family, but we just want to remember him, a legendary player, and yeah, just his memory will live on forever with the Irish and the Packers. Yeah, thoughts and prayers to his family. Um, rest in peace. Clearly someone who had a big impact on some key moments in football history on a couple of ridiculously historic teams at both the college and pro levels yeah definitely moving on to uh our last point the usc arizona game i guess you could kind of call it a trap game even though it doesn't again it doesn't feel like the although the arizona state win 
did not seem like, you know, obviously a authoritative commanding win over a great opponent. Uh, if you looked at that game, uh, it, it, that was not the highest quality football, let's just say that, on either side. Either, both sides came came away with a lot to critique themselves about. I will say, though, Arizona, they're, they're clearly one of the weaker teams in the Pac-12. They're also led by a big quarterback, Grant Gunnell, who's 6'6". He has been tough to bring down. That said, I do kind of expect more of um, I do kind of expect more of a pass rush to make a little more of a difference. Um, I do expect that USC, unlike against Arizona State, is able to jump out to a more sizable lead in this one. I just don't see anybody in Arizona State secondary who can keep up with the receiving core. I think that's where real that's obviously USC strength. I think that really shows up today. I think Drake London has a big game. I think Amon Ra St. Brown has a monster game. I expect him to really break out. Um, the depth of the depth of USC's wide receiver core as well. Um, I expect them to um, cycle in guys a little more. Um, so what I what I expect from this game is because this is the air raid, I expect them to get out to a big lead, maybe by two or three touchdowns early in the first half. And Arizona, I would expect Arizona because this is USC um, to kind of come back uh, late and kind of fall just short. So my prediction for this game is. Um, 38-34, a barn burner, but ultimately USC does hang on and come out on top and, and start the season 2-0. Again, as I've said many times, I'm not a Clay Helton fan. My hopes aren't particularly high for this season. They, The Arizona State game that we miraculously won last week did little to kind of uh, calm my fears, calm my apprehension about this team. So I don't, I don't expect... USC to beat Arizona the way they a team of their caliber should be expected to beat a team of Arizona's caliber, but I do expect them to prevail. Yeah, definitely. And and there's that's, that's an interesting point you bring up, and you see a lot of teams do it. You you predicted USC would get out to a lead, and a lot of times teams get out to that lead and they begin to play not to lose, which is yep. which is just a recipe for disaster. I've seen it many a time. Teams come back because you're not you're not keeping your gas your foot on the gas pedal, and and you're you're playing not to lose. That's a big vulnerability of the air raid too. Is you don't you don't run the ball, so you don't really get to chew clock. I mean, we both saw the game. We have we have some close friends who are Washington State fans, and we were both actually watching the Washington State UCLA game in the very room I'm sitting in, recording this podcast right now, where Washington State blew. I want to say, what was it like a five touchdown lead, six touchdown? It was lead unbelievable to to the Bruins. That was. Uh, crazy ugly 50 game. second half pound um, points allowed to the Bruins 50 yeah Washington State was undefeated going into the game USC UCLA excuse me was winless coming into that game and the first half looked like a romp and then in the second half everything went sideways um, but again you know if you don't run if you don't stick to the air raid as loyally as Mike Leach does and you know Graham Harrell is pretty sticks to the air raid pretty he clearly has a full mandate from uh uh, quite helping to do that. Although I will say USC's running backs do get their fair share of touches. I I don't expect I don't really expect too many leads to be safe, and so I don't expect too many huge blowouts this season. Even though USC on paper is probably the best team in the Pac-12 South. Yeah, definitely. And and another note to add coming into this game, obviously we saw last season um, for the Arizona Wildcats, but they had their game last week canceled due to COVID. And so they have yet to play a game this season at all. So you really, it's really a toss-up. We don't know what we're going to see from the Wildcats as they have yet to play a game in the Pac-12 or any game at all this season. So we'll see if they're game for an upset this week in Tucson. Um, but I do, obviously, I expect the experience of USC to, to uh, uh, win out in the end. Um, obviously, I think they should on paper definitely win, and I, I think they will. But yeah, it might be a bit closer than some might expect with that air raid. Going back again to that Washington State game, they didn't. They don't go under center when the air raid much. I think USC does a little bit more, maybe yeah. sometimes with the run game, but that they that do. game slipped away a bit because they threw the ball and then fumbled it. I mean, you can't do that. You're not you're not yeah. running the ball. Yeah. I mean, they almost could have taken a knee if he wouldn't have fumbled the ball, and then yeah. they were able to. I think UCLA scored 21 points in the last three minutes. It was just unbelievable. And the air raid sometimes can be the downfall in a comeback because it doesn't stop the clock. But USC has more capable running backs. And to USC's credit, they still, even under, obviously, Harold's, this is only Harold's second season there, Graham Harold, the offensive coordinator. Helton and USC do invest a lot more in the running back, back position than Mike Leach ever did at Washington State. 
they are able to kind of rely on that a little bit more when they do jump out the leads. Again, though, um, just given the dynamics of the air raid, I don't expect a blowout. I expect a USC win. I do not expect a blowout. Yeah, and it's actually an, another interesting note. The air raid is, is obviously no longer in Washington State, so I think USC may be yep. one of the only teams in the Pac-12 with it. Coach Nick Rolovich coming over from Hawaii to the Cougars up in the Palouse there, so he's no longer running. It was mind-blowing. We haven't seen it for years, obviously. As you mentioned, we've been watching games for four years with our college friends who are Washington State fans. The Washington State Cougars had more rushing yards in their past game than passing yards, something you never saw under Coach Mike yeah. Leach. So USC is now the air raid team of the Pac-12. I don't have the stats in front of me, but I highly doubt that ever happened to the Cougars under Mike Leach. Yeah, I would um, I would go out and throw it out on a limb and say never. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, one of our friends um, is a guy I still live with, and uh, he was he was kind of a disbelief, honestly. He was kind of I don't think he knew what to do with himself watching a, wa- a competent Washington State run game, even with starting running back uh, Max Borgie out. Yeah, Borgie was out, but a transfer from Notre Dame, actually, Dion McIntosh, had a huge game. They got the sweeps going to their receiver. Travell Harris had three touchdowns on the day, and yeah, the Cougars got it done. I think they had 234 rushing yards on the day, more than yeah. passing, which is something you never saw in the Mike Leach era. But yeah, now the yeah, that's about sh- a, 234 is about the amount of rushing yards that uh, a Mike Leach team would have over an entire season. So. <laughs> yeah so just about but yeah the air raid has shifted over into los angeles now usc Keaton slovis with that talented receiving core amon yeah. ross st brown obviously drake london brew mccoy a lot of talent there and the air raid it worked in the last three minutes last week and hopefully they can they can get it going a little bit earlier against the arizona wildcats and that's how usc is going to win games this year is they're going to rely on that talented receiving core the strength of their team through the air raid um to run up the score and then kind of hold the fort as much as they can. I think uh, Arizona is not their biggest test of the season. Um, I think that happened last week. But uh, they do have the Friday night game at Washington State as well, which will be interesting. But at the end of the day, I do expect, I I do think uh, USC, even if they don't play their best football, still has an excellent shot of going to the Pac-12 championship game. But we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Anything can happen, as we've seen this year, is a crazy year. Anything but normal, but excited to see the Pac-12 back in action, all five power conferences, and the NBA draft coming up. Just an exciting time for sports, and and we're here to talk about it. <laughs> 2020 is bananas, and I think that's a great place to leave it off, about as great a place as any. Um, thanks so much for listening, guys. I'm Austin Green with Joel Asher, and this has been Friends. <laughs>